Welcome to the Trinity Western University Chapel podcast. It is our prayer that these chapel talks would bless your heart and they would draw you closer to our Lord. We offer them to the glory of God and for the good of the world. Okay, good morning. Thank you for that. Um, I don't have any introducer, uh, any speaker to introduce you to this morning because I am the speaker both today and on Wednesday. Thank you. How did you know I needed the encouragement this morning? I've been teaching a class, and so uh, I run from that class to get to chapel, so I'm hoping that I'm going to be able to keep my thoughts together this morning. But uh, it is my pleasure and my delight to be able to talk about the theme of justice this morning, and from a particular angle. You will know if you've been with us that we're looking at Trinity Western's vision statement, and that is that by the time that students here graduate, they would be able to think truthfully, they would be able to act justly, and they would be able to live faithfully for the glory of God and the good of the world. And today I'm going to talk a little bit about justice. I talked to my students uh, maybe two weeks ago about a man called Crassus. Crassus was a third century Roman centurion. And it is because of Crassus that we have now in the English language the word crass, which means ruthless, because Crassus was a ruthless man. One of the ways that he demonstrated his ruthlessness was he had what we would consider today a fire truck. It's probably a wagon, some way of carrying water in the wagon, horses in front of it, and servants to run with buckets. And he would go to the scene of a fire, and he would stop. And he would wait for the owners of the house or the owner of the residence to come out and beg him for help. And he'd say, yes, yes, we're here to help. We're here to help. But first, I need your gold. First, you need to promise me that you'll give me all your gold. Crassus had an undying, unflinching, unflagging love for gold, and he would do whatever was necessary in order to get more of it. Indeed, he was ruthless. He was crass. He divested people of their life savings to put out their fire. No humanitarian, this guy. Toward the end of his life, the people had enough of Crassus, and so they decided to kill him. But they didn't want to kill him in any conventional kind of way. They didn't stab him with a sword. They didn't chop his head off. They didn't crucify him as they might have done. But instead, they heated up some of his own gold blocks. And they took that gold and they cocked his neck back and forced his mouth open and poured the gold down his throat. It was poetic justice. As Crassus had done to others, so now would be done to Crassus. With his love for gold, he destroyed many people economically, and now, with his love for gold, he himself was going to be destroyed by that gold. Crassus was given what he was owed, what he deserved. I think the simplest definition of justice is to say that we are talking about giving somebody what they are owed. And this can have a negative connotation that somebody is owed something bad, like punishment or retribution. He got what he deserved, Crassus. Or we could be talking about something positive because people are owed good things. You're owed respect. You're owed dignity. You're owed honor. So we're going to be talking about justice over the next several weeks. We're going to be talking about all kinds of justice. We're going to be talking about racial justice. We'll talk about 
justice for women, we're going to be talking about justice for the nations in this global village, things that oftentimes we love to talk about these forms of justice. But there is one topic of justice that I have never heard a sermon on specifically. I have never heard a lecture on this form of justice. I've never heard a chapel service about this. I've never even listened to a podcast about it in this kind of focus. And what I want to talk about today is that form of justice because it is preeminent. It is above all and most important to talk about this form of justice. And it is the theme of justice for God. And notice I'm not talking, I'm not saying the justice of God, the justice that God will give us, but rather I want to talk about justice for God, which is to say, what does God deserve? What is God owed? Or the way I'd like to frame the language is to say, what does it mean to do God justice? My wife and myself, Michelle, love to go up to Squamish. I don't know how many of you have been up to Squamish, close to Whistler. There's some unbelievable hikes there if you can get up if you like to hike. We like to get up there at least once a year and hike up towards Shannon Falls or some of the other mountaintops there. Invariably, we like to do this on a clear day. When we get up to the top, the views are spectacular because you can see the ocean below and the mountains in the background, even as you're standing on a mountain. Invariably, I'll get up there and I'll want to capture the view on my camera, so I take a picture. But then invariably, when we go down and I'm telling somebody about the wonderful day we had and I pull out my camera and I show them the picture, I say, oh, this picture just doesn't do it. It just doesn't do it justice. What does it mean to do God justice? That is to, to say, as a human being, to represent him, as the view, in the way that he should be viewed. I think we can reduce this, or at least epitomize what scripture says on this, with three descriptions. And I'm not trying to brag, but this is simple, it's pithy, it's laconic, it's memorable, and it's wonderfully phrased. Okay, it's also a bit familiar. You know what it means to do God justice? It means to learn and continue to learn to think truthfully, to act justly toward your neighbor, and to live faithfully, being and doing exactly and precisely what a human being is designed by God to be and do. It is our Trinity Western vision statement. If you live out the vision statement of Trinity Western University, you are going to be a person who does God justice. And let me just illustrate this from scripture so that you have some great examples here. At least I think they're great examples. The devil, also called Satan, also called the accuser of the brethren, perhaps called the Lord of the flies or Beelzebub and a whole lot of names, in Genesis chapter 3 is described as a serpent. The last thing that the devil wants is for us human beings to do God justice. Rather, he would want us to defame God. What is his first and foremost method in order to get human beings not to do God justice? God has laid out a banqueting table of grace before Adam and Eve. He's put them in a garden with trees of all sorts that are good to the eye and pleasing for food. And he has said, partake of my bounty. Here is my largesse with one prohibition against the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which represents that human beings are to be dependent upon God for wisdom. He restricts them from that one tree for their good. But when the devil comes to Adam and Eve, and Eve in particular, in Genesis chapter 3, he says what? Did God really say? Doubt God's word. 
Doubt that God would tell you the truth. Think wrongly about God's character. Did God really say that you must not eat of any of the trees in the garden? Eve, you think that God is gracious. You think that God lives with an open hand. You think that he spreads his seed abroad and invites you into the bounty of his goodness and his love. Oh, but really, Eve, look, God restricts you. He is actually a penny-pinching cheapskate. He wants to withhold good things from good people. He's tight-fisted, Eve. The first thing the devil does when he wants human beings to come to the place of not doing God justice is he tries to get them to think wrongly about God. You cannot trust the goodness of his character. Doubt it. He actually wants to ruin all your fun. He's actually a party pooper. That's why he gives you his law. Ever had a thought like that before? And indeed, Adam and Eve are led into the place where they do not do God justice because it's not true. The same goes on in the book of Job. Job's friends are indicted because they don't speak truthfully about God. It's not only, of course, speaking or thinking truthfully about God, it's speaking truthfully. You know the story of Job. Job is hit by calamity after calamity after calamity, but we, the readers of Job, are given a privileged perspective. We know that Job is a righteous man. He's a blameless man in God's eyes. He's innocent. He's innocent. And the devil goes to God at the beginning, and we're in this heavenly council, and he accuses God that there's a fundamental flaw in his creation. You know what the flaw is? God, your people, human beings, only love you because of your gifts. They love your gifts, not the gift giver. There's a flaw. They, you're a cotton candy God. Take away the cotton candy. They won't love you anymore, God. Look at Job. The only reason he loves and serves you is because of the gifts that you give to him. And God says, okay, go ahead. Take away his family. Take away his physical well-being and health and see what happens to Job. See if you're telling the truth. Job's friends come to him and they condemn him. Job, they have a philosophy that is called eudaimonistic. They have a eudaimonistic view of the world, which is to say, if you do good, you get good. If you do bad, you get bad. Job, you did bad, therefore, or Job, you are experiencing bad, therefore, you must have done bad. It's eudaimonistic view of the universe. Therefore, they know Job is guilty. And they pound him and they pound him and pound him and say, just admit your fault. And Job says, I am not guilty I am not suffering because of my sin. God is responsible for my innocent suffering. It's quite the indictment. God's to blame for my suffering. And at the end of the book, God comes and he says, Job has spoken truthfully and Job's friends have lied. And he says, they have not spoken truthfully about me. Therefore, Job, you need to offer a sacrifice for them so that it can be right between us again. They didn't do God justice. One of the things, if we are going to do God justice, is we need to learn to speak truthfully about who God is and think truthfully about who he is, which is why engaging in God's word is completely and so renewing and important. But secondly, then, we also need to learn to act justly. Specifically toward our neighbor, there's an intimate connection between doing God justice and doing our neighbor justice. Psalm 51 has a line in it that has shocked me and baffled me for many, many years, or had shocked me and baffled me. I now think I know what's going on. Do you know the context of Psalm 51? Psalm 51 is after David has committed adultery with Bathsheba. 
He has killed Uriah. He's hidden the evidence. He's confronted by Nathan the prophet because before that confrontation, he's unrepentant. Psalm 51 is the great penitential psalm of David where he's confessing his sin before God. But he says something in that psalm that kind of blows your socks off. He's done all of these horrible things to Bathsheba, to Uriah, to the people of Israel. And he says, almost piously, sanctimoniously, against you and you only have I done what is, uh, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, O God. And you're like, what? Are you out of your flipping mind? You sinned against Uriah. You sinned against Bathsheba. You sinned against the whole people, you scum. Are you abnegating your responsibility? Come, David, come. No, no, no. What David's getting at is not literally that he hasn't sinned against them, but the way we should conceptualize our sin is if you touch another human being and violate them, you violate God first and foremost. Why? Because God lives in them. To lift a high hand against another human being is an act of high treason against God because they have God within them. The same point is made in the book of Acts for the disciples of Jesus specifically. Saul has been persecuting the church of God. He stands by while Stephen is stoned. Jesus comes to him on the road to Damascus and he says what? He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? No. Why are you persecuting my disciples? No. Why are you persecuting me? (laughs) Wow. To touch a disciple of Jesus is to touch Jesus himself. Yes, because the spirit of Jesus himself is in his disciple. To lift a hand against a fellow human being is an act of high treason against God himself. Therefore, if we're going to do God justice, we need to do justice to our fellow human being. It is axiomatic in scripture. Third and finally, not only must we think and speak truthfully, not only act justly, but we must live faithfully which is to say to be and do exactly and precisely what a human being was created to do. I like Psalm 19 in this regard. Psalm 19 is about the heavens declaring the glory of God and the firmament showing his handiwork. How did the heavens declare the glory of God? That's what happens in the next half of the psalm. You know how it is? The sun does exactly and precisely what it was designed to do. It rises in the east. It travels the expanse of the sky like a bridegroom running to race its course. And then it sets in the west every single day with regularity, just as God created it, heating this earth, providing uh, light so that the plants can grow and so that we can keep on living. And then David makes a shift in Psalm 19. He says, the law of the God is flawless, reviving the soul. And you're like, David, why are you going to the law? It was such a beautiful psalm. Now you have to talk about the law? Why are you talking about the law? Ah, and then it hits you. It's because the law was given by God so that human beings might glorify him. Because we glorify God also by the way we live our lives morally and God's law is a blueprint for human flourishing ultimately. The problem is, and I need hasten here, the problem is, is of course we don't keep the law. So we don't live faithfully. We don't act justly toward our neighbor and we don't think and speak truthfully. But here's the thing. Here is the absolute thunderclapping wonder of the gospel. God does not give us as we deserve. He does not give us what we are owed. God does not pour molten gold down our throats even though that is what we may deserve. But instead, he provides a way so that we might be 
clothed in garments of glory. He does not engage in poetic justice. He engages in redemptive justice in and through the person of Jesus who lived faithfully, who acted justly, who thought and spoke perfectly all the time. And instead of getting, giving us what we deserve, he gives us what Christ deserves and give Christ what we deserved, which is why he goes to the cross. It is a deep enough mystery here to keep us engaged for a lifetime. And I have 30 seconds. So let me pray a doxological prayer for us and you can go. Oh Lord, we praise you for the work that you have done on the canvas of history. Thank you, oh God, that you have called us to such an important task and identity in this world as your image bearers. But Lord, we know that we have failed. And so we ask that you would cover us with the blood of Christ himself. We thank you, Lord, that you indeed are a God of love and that we love because you have loved us first. We, Lord, we act out of the sense of gratitude, not out of a sense of legalism, but because, oh, how great is the love that the Father has lavished on us in and through the Son by the Spirit. Receive the praises of our hearts, O God, and tune our hearts to sing your praise. I pray for a blessing over each one of the students that are here today, Lord, faculty, staff, or friends of Trinity Western. Give us vitality and victory in our walk so we may be a blessing to others as well. Send us now, Lord, into the day and give us the strength to do the task that we need. We pray in Jesus' name and together we say, amen. Go in peace.